Okay, welcome everyone to the Chiropractic Science Podcast. My name is Dr. Dean Smith and I'll be your host for this interview. Just a brief background about myself. I'm a clinical faculty member in the Department of Kinesiology and Health at Miami University and also maintain a private practice of chiropractic in Eaton, Ohio at Essence Wellness Chiropractic Center. My goals for producing these research interviews are first to get the word out about chiropractic research from the experts that are actually doing the research. Dissemination of research findings is a critical part of the research process. Publicizing these interviews passes on the benefits of chiropractic research to other researchers, chiropractors in practice, as well as practitioners from other disciplines and the wider community. Secondly, my goal is to encourage collaboration of researchers to promote future high-quality chiropractic research. And lastly, I'd like to motivate and assist practitioners and students alike to pursue research careers in chiropractic science. Also, I'd like to point out that Chiropractic Science has partnered with chirocredit.com to make these podcasts a little bit more interactive. You can now have the opportunity to hear the podcast live as well as to ask uh, us uh, on the podcast uh, any questions that you may have. So thank you, Chirocredit, for making this possible. Well, let's get on with today's show. Today, I'm extremely uh, happy to have on uh, the interview with me, Dr. Stephen Passmore. Dr. Passmore is an assistant professor in the Faculty of Kinesiology and Recreation Management at the University of Manitoba. He holds adjunct appointments in the College of Rehabilitation Sciences at the University of Manitoba, the Research Department at New York Chiropractic College, and the University of Ontario Institute of Technology. His expertise deals with human perceptual learning and motor control. Dr. Passmore utilizes his theoretical and applied background in perceptual motor behavior to explore performance-based outcome measures in an attempt to objectively determine population characteristics, movement outcomes, and sustainability of interventions. Dr. Passmore practiced as a chiropractor in the Buffalo Veterans Affairs Medical Center and is currently in practice in Manitoba. He has held competitive grants from the Canadian Institute for Health Research, the Workers' Compensation Board of Manitoba, Research Manitoba, the Manitoba Medical Service Foundation, and the Alexander Gibson Fund. Dr. Passmore, thanks so much for being on the Chiropractic Science Podcast. Well, thanks a lot for having me, Dr. Smith. Let's get on with uh, some of the many questions that I have for you today. Um, first of all, Dr. Passmore, how did you become interested in being a chiropractor? Well, it's been a, a long road. And so initially, my interest came from uh, the martial arts and just sort of learning what the body's potential was. And so I was involved in that for a number of years while I was younger. And I was always really interested in, in nature, being in nature, hiking around, things like that. And I became uh, a camp counselor. And one night I was talking to other camp counselors, and we were sitting on, a, on a, the front porch of a cabin. And uh, a girl turned to me and she said, you know, I think you'd make a really good chiropractor. And I said, really? And I said, I, I'm not quite sure what that is. And so she proceeded to explain to me what a chiropractor was and what chiropractors do. And it really sort of started something with me. And then I looked more into the profession, and I found that it really did align with what a lot of my interests were. Excellent. That's, it's kind of funny because uh, when I first heard the word chiropractor, it was a neighbor of mine who told, uh, 
told my mom uh, that I should go see one, uh, and she, you know, used the word chiropractor, and my mom and I both looked at each other, and as I recall, I, I was like, a chiro what? <laughs> I had no idea uh, what a chiropractor was at the time, so that's, that's really cool. And so, did you have any, um, did you have any personal experiences uh, with a chiropractor, or any chiropractic experiences that seemed to spark your interest after that? Well, the the first place that I looked after that, I mean, this you know, this is in a time that sort of uh, predated the internet and things like that, so it wasn't easy to find uh, resources the way that we can now. And so, one of the first things that I did after uh, going home and uh, for the summer was to look up who the local chiropractor in my hometown was. And so I looked him up and I scheduled a phone call with him, and I, I got my first introduction to the profession. That's great. Now, did you grow up in Ontario, or are you Canadian, or I'm not sure. Yes, I am, yeah. I'm, I'm Canadian. I grew up in a small town called Dunville, Ontario, and it's close to where the, uh, the Grand River meets Lake Erie. All right. Good stuff. So, uh, you got to chiropractic college, and uh, you went to New York Chiropractic College, if I remember correct, and, but before that, you also did a master's degree in Las Vegas. That's right. Yeah, I, um, what sort of brought me through so how did chiropractic... So how did you get from Ontario? Well, I started to do an undergraduate degree. So after I, I decided that chiropractic was the route that I wanted to go, I decided to look around and see what do you need to get into chiropractic college. And so I looked at the different undergraduate degree programs that existed, and one that jumped out at me was at McMaster University. And so... I did my undergraduate degree there in kinesiology, and while I was there, I kept coming across opportunities to get involved in research as a, as a research participant, and uh, I wanted to learn more about that process. So I started to go and volunteer in these studies, and, and I got pretty excited about the process, so much so that in the final year of my studies, uh, I was able to do an undergraduate thesis. And so... Uh, I found an advisor who, uh, who I connected with, and that was Dr. Tim Lee at McMaster. And uh, we did an undergraduate thesis project together, and I, I really sort of connected with the research process. And it was after that experience, uh, and, and we were able to present the data that we had collected uh, at, a, at an international conference. And so it was after that experience that I knew that research was something that I wanted to be involved in, but at the same time, I still wanted to accomplish my goal of becoming a chiropractor. And so I approached Dr. Lee for a letter of reference for chiropractic college, and he asked me if I'd ever considered grad school. And I said, well, I'd thought about it, but I'd been in Hamilton for four years. I was ready to go somewhere else and do something different. And he said, well, he has a lot of people that he knows across the country and around the world. And, and he said, why don't you come back in a week and I'll see if anybody's looking for a graduate student. And I said, okay. And so I came back a week later and he said, okay, there's, there's two opportunities that exist for you. Uh, one of them is uh, in New Zealand and another one is at the University of Nevada, which is in Las Vegas. And so, you know, being somebody who hadn't lived that far away from home at the time, I wasn't really prepared to move to the other side of the world. But staying in North America seemed like a, a pretty good option. And, and when I explored the program and talked to the potential advisor at the University of Nevada, it was just the right fit. Well, that, that is terrific stuff. I love to hear that. And uh, so glad that you continued on with the research. And I'm sure that gave you 
a head start actually before you got to chiropractic college. Absolutely. Then you went to chiropractic college after your master's degree and soon after you were uh, in practice at the VA. Can you tell us your experience about uh, what, what it was like at the VA? Sure. Um, so initially I went to, um, to chiropractic college and New York Chiropractic College was the, the right fit based on my, my interests and my background. And so when I went there, I approached everything from a research perspective. So the entire curriculum, all the classes, all the professors, everyone that I was interacting with, you know, I was constantly saying, well, why do we do this? What is the, the best approach to this type of care? Do we know more about why we do this versus why we don't? And I got a few different responses. And there were some professors that would tell me, well, this is just what we do because this is what we've always done. And that was, that was a response that I wasn't 100% satisfied with. But I had other professors that would say, well, this is what we do, and here's the evidence behind why we do what we do. And then I would have other professors who would say, you know what? We don't have enough evidence in this area. We need to learn more about why we do what we do in regard to this. And so that was something that sort of always motivated me when I was moving through to try to figure out what evidence existed and what we needed to do more work in. And at the New York Chiropractic College, in your final year, you go through an undergraduate, uh, uh, well, not an undergraduate, but you go through your clinical rotation. So you spend an entire year in an outpatient clinic uh, that is either on campus in Seneca Falls or is uh, upstate New York in Depew, or it could be downstate in Long Island. And so I decided to go upstate in Depew because it was closer to Canada. And the opportunity existed uh, to do a six-week rotation in the VA Medical Center, which is in Buffalo, New York. And so it was a competitive application. Uh, there were only a limited number of spots, and you know I was really hoping to be able to get involved in that. I, I had a strong interest in, in being in an integrated environment. I was fortunate that during my earlier trimesters, when I was in sixth trimester, there was an opportunity to do a radiology residency in uh, a local hospital called Clifton Springs Hospital. And so I had that on my, my resume to, to go to the VA, but I also had on my resume uh, that I had a Master of Science degree. And so typically the rotations were six weeks in duration, long enough to learn how to use the system, be in the environment, be productive, uh, interact with some patients, and then you, know, you go back to the, uh, the Depew Health Center and continue with your education. But because of my background uh, as someone who had a, a Master of Science and had a research publication and those kinds of things, the chiropractor who was running the clinic, uh, Dr. Andrew Dunn, actually said, okay, you know the typical rotations are six weeks. And I said, absolutely, I look forward to being here for an entire six weeks. And he said, well, I'd actually like you to stay the entire clinical year that you have at New York Chiropractic College. And I said, absolutely. I was very excited about the opportunity to be able to work in the VA environment as a student and spend my entire clinical year there in training. Wow, that is really neat. That is neat. Uh, so I didn't. I knew you had worked there. I didn't realize that it had started as a clinical rotation. So that that is really tremendous. And the fact that you had that opportunity to engage in some research there is even that much better. So you've gotten through chiropractic college. You had a master's degree. What sparked your interest to pursue? Uh, 
research as a full-time researcher and pursue your PhD? Well, it was really through the experiences that I'd had at the VA. And so, you know, I went through chiropractic college and I had lots of questions and I, I felt that more research needed to be done. During my last uh, couple of semesters on campus at New York Chiropractic College, when I was down in Seneca Falls, the opportunity existed to take uh, courses that were elective credits. And I read the course calendar pretty carefully, and I saw that you didn't just have to take the courses that were being offered. You could also do a uh, research pro project and have that count toward elective credits. And so essentially what I ended up doing was an undergraduate or uh, thesis, or, or a, a, I guess a thesis at chiropractic college that was uh, covering a couple of different semesters and used up these elective credits. So I found a supervisor in the research department who had a background that was actually quite similar to my own. Dr. Jean-Marie Burke uh, is a PhD in motor control, and so it was great being able to connect with her because she understood the theoretical framework that I had been trained in. She knew uh, who my advisors had been in my undergraduate and master's uh, work. And so we really hit it off in terms of trying to uh, figure out how to move forward with the research project. So she supervised my, my work that I was doing there. That experience uh, resulted in uh, generating two publications. And then what we were able to do is uh, uh, I was able to be put forward for an award at my convocation. Uh, for, uh, for my participation in research while I was at chiropractic college. And so I recognized that you know, the chiropractic profession really values research and, and valued the type of research that Dr. Burke and I were able to, uh, to do. And so while I was at the VA, I talked to a number of different clinicians that were on site. And I worked fairly closely with clinicians that were in orthopedic surgery and chronic pain when I was doing my final year there as a student. And I worked so closely with them that I was actually pretty much in orthopedic surgery clinics two days a week, assisting with documentation and observing and uh, being a student in a very integrated environment. So as a result of that, the orthopedic surgeon that I was working with was a medical doctor, but he also had a doctor of science, which is a PhD equivalent. He was cross-appointed as a faculty member at the University at Buffalo. And so I got to see his balance as a clinician scientist, knowing that, you know, it doesn't have to be a discrete career choice. You don't have to say, okay, you know, I'm a medical doctor and this is what I do, or I'm a chiropractor and that's what I do. You can be both. So you can be a medical doctor, but also a researcher or a chiropractor and also a researcher. And so it was very exciting for me to actually see that and have a role model in that type of an environment. And so I ended up, uh, at the end of my student year in, in finishing up at the VA and finishing up at New York Chiropractic College, I looked into what existed beyond that. And New York Chiropractic College at that time had something called a fellowship program. And the fellowship program existed so that if you were uh, a DC who was interested in pursuing an advanced research degree, then they would be able to offer you some tuition assistance. They would be able to offer you a living stipend while you pursued your graduate degree at a traditional academic institution. And what they expected from you was some sort of a teaching commitment uh, at, their, uh, at their chiropractic college. And so I spent the first two years of my PhD 
working with NYCC and I worked at the Veterans Hospital. And so that was their expectation of me was that I continue on at the VA hospital, but no longer in the role of a student or a trainee, but as a licensed clinician. And so I practiced alongside Dr. Dunn. And in that period of time, we were able to continue uninterrupted with the lines of research that we had been creating and following within the VA environment. And I was able to supervise student interns who were uh, doing rotations from New York Chiropractic College. So I was able to teach them how to use the electronic medical record and the kinds of sensitive situations, how to, how to deal with the sensitive patient situations that you deal with in a veterans hospital environment that you may not have to deal with in uh, a typical outpatient setting. And so it was a great opportunity to pass on uh, the skills that I had recently learned uh, being a trainee in that environment and then having the opportunity to be a clinician as well. So gaining uh, advanced clinical experience very early in my career was extremely helpful. And having the finances provided by New York Chiropractic College opened the door to be able to apply for additional research funding to be able to pursue an academic degree. And so I remember approaching Tim Lee and saying, you know, I think I've got one more degree left in me if you'd be willing to supervise me. And he said, absolutely. And uh, so we decided to move forward together uh, working on my, my PhD. And at the time, there was uh, the Foundation for Chiropractic Education and Research, the FCER, was also supporting uh, graduate student work for DCs. And so I applied for, uh, for that and was awarded a fellowship so I was coming to Dr. Lee as, uh, as a graduate student who had funding both from NYCC and the FCER, and uh, that was how I was able to, to start my PhD. Fantastic. I, I didn't realize that you could do the uh, work and still teach at the chiropractic college. That, I hadn't heard of that before, so that's really a, a neat avenue. And yeah, the FCER was such a good... Uh, organization. It's sad to see it go. I also had a fellowship uh, in the early 2000s uh, through them and they were, they were you know very good at uh, supporting many of our uh, contemporary chiropractic colleagues. Uh, so kudos to them and thank you uh, for supporting all of us in the past. Uh, so what I'd like to do next is talk about some of your publications and your interests, specifically uh, your research interests within chiropractic. Now you've uh, authored numerous publications in scientific journals such as Spine, Journal of Electromyography and Kinesiology, Manual Therapy, JMPT, Journal of the Canadian Chiropractic Association and others. With your background in kinesiology and motor control and motor learning, do you see any important questions or hypotheses regarding chiropractic that you feel are addressable through these methods? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. It was, um, it was fascinating to me. I mean, my master's and my PhD are uh, both in the motor behavior realm. And so uh, what happened was when I was going to chiropractic college, I was, I was learning this motor skill. And I just spent the previous two years learning to, how to assess and evaluate motor skills. And so if you think about it, when you're a chiropractor and you're going to chiropractic college, uh, on day one, you're not expected to have any knowledge of, of this motor skill, which is the delivery of a chiropractic adjustment. And by the day you graduate, you're expected to be this expert in the delivery of you know, the precise 
motor actions that lead to a chiropractic adjustment and, uh, and, and other aspects of chiropractic therapy. So I was very interested in seeing how these paradigms were being used within the curriculum. So uh, things that have been very well documented and well studied from a motor learning standpoint, were they being trained in, in teaching us how to deliver these motor skills? And I was quite excited that the curriculum at NYCC did have courses that were in psychomotor skills where they recognize that you, you don't just jump in with a, a person and start doing the, these actions. You can actually learn how to do the skills on different models. And the models don't have to be extremely complex or complicated. Sometimes just learning how to use your muscles uh, to do the things that we need to do as chiropractors, you can do them on very low fidelity models. And so uh, you know something as simple as moving a medicine ball around to uh, practice uh, the skill and uh, strengthen your arms to be able to move someone's head around. Transferable tasks like that. And so I recognized immediately the overlap between the two fields. And then as a, uh, as a researcher, uh, I, I started to wonder, well, what about our patients? If, if, we're, if we're actually treating a patient, then what kinds of differences do they have? And you know, most clinicians out there will tell you, you know, a patient came to see me because they had pain or a patient came to see me because they had dysfunction or some combination of the two. And so when it comes to pain, pain is a very difficult thing to measure. And so you can ask someone what their pain is on a scale of 1 to 10 and they may say, well, I think it's a 2 or maybe it's an 8. But it almost seems arbitrary, the, the number that they pick and, you know, is that number going to be the same between different patients and different conditions and things like that. So there's a lot of variability in a self-reported outcome measure. But when it comes to function, we all move. And one of the things that happens that we can measure with motor behavior type outcomes is movement. And there's a lot of paradigms that exist that look at how people move and why people move and the components of people's movements. And so that's really where uh, the interest lies for me in terms of looking at what we can measure uh, using a motor behavior type task. And so we can measure both the patients and, and their ability to move prior to and following a course of care, but we can also look at the movements that are generated by student clinicians and then clinicians who have been in practice for a long time in terms of the actual motor skill of delivering a chiropractic adjustment. Excellent. Uh, so I want to follow up on what you just said and tell everyone that uh, a significant interest in your research definitely is uh, investigating the effects of manipulation or chiropractic adjustment on human performance. And there's been several papers that I can think of over the years that you've published that really, in my mind, hit the nail on the head, so to speak, uh, to target these issues. One significant paper uh, that I like to, uh, to quote and think about is from the Journal of Electromyography and Kinesiology uh, back in 2012. And that was a literature review, essentially, of what has been done in, in chiropractic dealing with motor performance and, and the effects on our chiropractic patients. But you've got many other interests, including neurophysiological methods such as somatosensory evoked potentials and their usefulness in chiropractic. Uh, a spine neuromuscular uh, control mechanisms and motor learning as you talked about with uh, giving an adjustment and looking at the kind of parameters of how one might deliver that adjustment. So I'd like to ask you some questions regarding some of these works 
if I could. The first one is, could you tell us a little bit more uh, specifically, maybe talk about some of these papers that you've done looking at chiropractic and the effects on motor performance, let's say from the patient's point of view, what, what do the patients notice uh, improving with their motor performance and, and uh, can you relate them to the studies that you've done? Absolutely. So the paper that uh, I published with uh, Martin Decoreau in uh, the Journal of Electromyography and Kinesiology, we were really interested in what is out there. And so we deliberately didn't do a systematic review because we knew that that would only really include things like randomized control trials and it would have very strict inclusion criteria. But what we wanted to do was really look, what has anyone done that looks at uh, measuring objective performance following spinal manipulation. And so uh, we covered the gamut of uh, types of studies, things from individual prospective case studies to, uh, to larger scale studies, observational studies, cohort studies, randomized clinical trials, to look to see what kind of outcome measures had been used to uh, evaluate changes. And we we're very excited to see that there was a fairly broad range of, of motor tasks that people are using to uh, evaluate people post-spinal manipulation. One of the most common ones that we saw emerge was range of motion. And so range of motion has been used in uh, all varying capacities of, uh, of, of studies. But it was something that was consistent. A lot of people seem to measure it. It seems to be sort of low-hanging fruit in terms of being able to uh, easily able to measure in clinical practice without a lot of sophisticated equipment. And so that was something that stood out for me. And I related it back to uh, work that uh, we did uh, that was published in uh, JMPT, in, which involved manipulation of the cervical spine and performance on a Fitz Law task. And so the task itself was interesting, and we were able to look at what the outcomes were, specifically, are the outcomes that we're seeing, the changes in motor performance, are they limited to biomechanical changes, or is there something more going on? And with that particular study design, we weren't able to discern between the two. So, you know, we recognized that an adjustment changed the biomechanics immediately for the population that we looked at. A, a cervical manipulation resulted in increased range of motion, which would reflect a, a biomechanical change. But then uh, the Fitz Law task looks more at a coordinated motor performance task. And so we saw some changes in that too. But how can we explain those changes? And so the behavioral sciences and the behavioral studies are, are a nice way to be able to recognize when something unique or interesting is happening. And your study that came out uh, before our Fitz Law study uh, involving the movements of the hand also reflected that. The adjustments that, that were done in your study weren't necessarily just a biomechanical change that was happening, and it was a change in coordinated motor performance. And so uh, we recognize that, that this is something that is replicable in multiple scientific studies. It seems to cross effectors uh, in terms of, you know, you guys looked at the upper extremity. We looked at movements of the head. And so how do you measure those kinds of changes? So my background is, is primarily with using behavioral measures to do that. But I knew of some other people out there who were interested in some behavioral measures, but also knew more about the neurophysiological aspects of it. Uh, so Dr. Burke had done some work looking at uh, TMS as well as the H-reflex 
following spinal manipulation. So those were more neurophysiological measures that, uh, that I knew less about at that time. And also some work by Dr. Bernadette Murphy and her group. And Dr. Murphy uh, has really excellent methodology in terms of uh, how she conducts her somatosensory evoked potential studies as well as her TMS studies. And so I, I followed up with Dr. Murphy and I sent her an email uh, explaining, you know, who I was and what I had hoped to, to work on over the, the course of my PhD. And she very kindly responded and, and, and it turned out that she had actually just recently moved back to Canada. Um, she had been in New Zealand where she had been conducting her research before at the university of, uh, at a university that was down there. And she moved back to Ontario and she was looking to build her research program here. So the timing really couldn't have been better. And so uh, I ended up testing multiple experiments from my PhD dissertation in Dr. Murphy's lab. And so Dr. Murphy was on my PhD committee and uh, we've worked closely ever since. So uh, I, I've been very fortunate to have uh, good people around me who, uh, who I've been able to work with as I've started to develop this, this line of work. Excellent. So it seems like there are multiple measures that we could look at. You you mentioned, uh, for example, the Fitz law, range of motion. I know in the paper you had talked about grip strength and there are multiple studies, uh, several dissertations that are out there looking at improved uh, performance in, in terms of the, the grip strength, uh, as well as um, Dr. Esther Souter has published several studies looking at uh, this as well and the neuromuscular control effects following chiropractic adjustments. It seems like there are uh, some significant performance enhancements, if you will, that follow uh, chiropractic adjustments. Would you agree? Oh, absolutely. And I, and I can speak to that both as a, as a clinician and as a scientist. Uh, while I was at the VA, I had a patient who was uh, an elite soccer player. He was also an elite combat athlete in terms of uh, being active in, in the field. And he, uh, he had been a victim of a, uh, an acquired brain injury and uh, due, to, um, due to his role in the, in the special forces. And he would come in and I would treat him as a veteran. And as soon as I would treat him, he would get up off the table and he would move his feet around the way that he would in a soccer drill. And, you know, I, I was sort of confused by this at first. And he said, I can do it. I can do it again. I can do it the way that I used to. And he was very excited following that clinical experience that he was able to move in this coordinated fashion. And he said, any time that you treat me the way that you treat me, I have that return of sensation and that return of proprioception and, and motor ability that I didn't have or I don't have on the usual day-to-day -day basis. And while it was only a transient effect, it was something that might last, you know, for the rest of the day or maybe for a couple of days or things like that, it made a pretty big difference to him. And it made me wonder, you know, what exactly is the mechanism of spinal manipulation and what can it change for people in terms of uh, their ability to move? And so having the background in motor behavior, I was able to start to try to look at different ways that we can measure coordinated movements. And so to me, that was the attractiveness of, of Fitz's law is that, you know, really it's one of two laws in motor behavior and it's very robust, very transferable, and it's been well studied over the past 50 years. So to take a paradigm like that, that is so strongly developed and be able to apply it to a clinical context, um, 
I found was really, really very, uh, very helpful for me in trying to provide some sort of a framework. And the more that I thought about it, and the more that I got involved in it, it became clear that when you are using a motor performance outcome measure, you need to be very aware of the abilities of your patient and how difficult the actual task is. So that framework was actually developed by my uh, master's advisor, Dr. Mark Guadagnoli, and, uh, and he developed it with uh, Dr. Tim Lee, who became my PhD advisor. But while I was doing my master's degree with Mark, that was something that, uh, that he talked about, was the, the challenge point framework. So the challenge point framework looks specifically at how difficult a task is and what the skill level of the performer is. And initially, they conceptualized it in terms of uh, things that are more applied to a sports situation. But in the years that have gone by since the challenge point framework first came out, it's been applied to many different situations, both development, sport, uh, and, and now clinical care. And so looking at uh, what your patient's abilities and limitations are and the inherent difficulty of the task. The nice thing about Fitts Law is that you set up different indexes of difficulty or different levels of difficulty in the task by manipulating various aspects of the actual experiment itself. So you can look to see uh, how easy or how hard a task is and you can, you can measure a continuum through that and then you can tease out some differences. And, and what I found is that if a task is too easy, if someone is symptomatic or not, uh, they might perform the same way because the task itself is too easy. Or if the task is too hard, you might get a ceiling effect where uh, the, or sorry, a floor effect where they, they can't actually do the task because the task is inherently so difficult that you see no diff difference between a healthy performer and, and someone who, uh, uh, who is a clinical patient. So what I've been able to discern is that you need a bandwidth to be able to study of, uh, of difficulty where uh, it's not too hard or it's not too easy. And that was another paper that came out in manual therapy uh, with uh, Martin Decaro and myself looking at uh, patients with uh, neck pain. And we were able to find that when you had the right level of difficulty in the task, you were able to discern differences between uh, when people had neck pain and when they didn't. And so uh, it really became important when studying these kinds of performance-based tasks to make sure that your task difficulty was appropriate. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, and that was a great paper, by the way, in manual therapy that you just mentioned about the neck pain and the Fitz law. Um, I'd like to get on to um, another paper. Since we were just talking about Fitz law, you, one of your papers won the 2014 ACC Rack Award, uh, which is a, a large chiropractic conference devoted to research. And uh, this was dealing with lower extremity motor control tasks. And specifically, it was looking at the differences between healthy and lumbar spinal stenosis populations. What were, what were the findings uh, from that paper? Well, I, uh, I, I first, before I go too in-depth into my uh, answer to that, I, I would like to take the, this moment to, to uh, express my gratitude to the Association of Chiropractic Colleges Research Agenda Conference. It's, it's, a, it's been a fantastic conference to attend throughout, uh, throughout my career so far as a, as a chiropractor and, and researcher. And, uh, you know, my work there has always been very well received from, you know, my, my earliest works as, a, as a, someone who was a PhD student and, uh, and, a, and a clinician 
to uh, to the works that I'm doing now. So you know, I, I really consider it sort of a home conference. And you know, for anybody, uh, if you want to meet me and have discussions about this kind of stuff, you can you can pretty much expect that I'll be at the uh, the ACC RAC conference trying to uh, share some of the newest work that I've I've been able to publish or or, uh, or present. And so. This particular paper looked at uh, degenerative lumbar spinal stenosis. And one of the frustrations that I've had in the past with chiropractic research is that there is a lot of information that's out there, and there's a lot of studies that are being designed, but the clinical population that people are using for their studies often is you know, generic back pain, so nonspecific low back pain. People don't really go into the details about it. They might say, well, it's mechanical back pain, or it's nonspecific, but there's no clear diagnosis that's attached to it. And so I made it a point early in my career to be able to try to identify populations early on, specifically populations that have the potential to re respond to chiropractic intervention. Now a chiropractor can never necessarily cure stenosis, but we can manage their symptoms. And so that was something that I experienced when I was doing my PhD at McMaster. I was working in uh, part-time clinical practice and I was able to look to see uh, who would respond to care and who wouldn't. And I had some patients with stenosis that really valued the care that they received when they would come in and, uh, and be treated. And then I learned more about what stenosis really was and how prevalent it is. And it's actually the number one reason why people over the age of 65 proceed for orthopedic spine surgery. And so I recognized that this was a population that uh, is very prevalent and uh, it's a diagnosis that's fairly easy to make in terms of the actual uh, symptoms that a patient has and the findings that you can correlate on imaging. So it seemed like a good population to move forward with. When I moved to Manitoba, one of the first people who approached me was an orthopedic spine surgeon. And he said that his wait list was far too long. If in Canada, in the publicly funded system, if you have uh, degenerative lumbar spinal stenosis and you require surgery for it, but it's not an emergency surgery, you'll be on a wait list for about two years in the province of Manitoba before you're actually able to receive that surgery. And so uh, the government is not happy with that, the patient population is not happy with that, and so this spine surgeon said, you know, help, help me better understand this population, help me uh, to, to work with this population. And so he and I started to design a number of different studies that we could use to look at this population. And so the study that was published uh, in JMPT and won the ACC RAC Award uh, was, a, was an effort that he and I did together where basically what we would do is my lab at the university is situated within a, uh, a rehabilitation hospital uh, at the downtown campus of the University of Manitoba. And so because of that, patients are used to going there for clinical care. And so he was able to set up an orthopedic spine surgery assessment clinic in my lab. So I was able to have a, a lab space where he was able to see patients and assess them to determine whether or not they were appropriate candidates and are, were willing to participate in a research study. And then literally in the room next door was my large lab where I had you know, my uh, three-dimensional imaging equipment and, and things like that to be able to actually uh, measure uh, the changes that we look for in these kinds of studies. And so it's, it's a very nice design when a patient who struggles to leave the home in general is able to sort of have a one-stop visit where they, they come in, they see the surgeon, they get assessed, 
and then they come into the lab, they're able to perform the actual experiment, and then at the end of the day, they sort of go on their way. And so to have that kind of a setup is uh, really been what's been essential to my being able to do research with a special population like this. And so we did a series of studies, and so the one that's in JMPT is actually the second in the series of studies. So the first study is going to be coming out in the journal Human Movement Science. And uh, I got confirmation of, uh, of the publication actually yesterday. So, uh, so this is very uh, hot off the presses kind of news. So with that study, what we did is we looked at people who had degenerative lumbar spinal stenosis and people who didn't, and we compared them in their ability to move on a lower extremity Fitz Law task. So people had to point with their foot to different targets that would appear on, uh, on the ground in front of them. And so we followed the, the principles of Fitz Law and we used that uh, as sort of our framework. We also correlated uh, clinical outcome measures that were typically used. So looking at uh, a quadruple numeric rating scale for pain, the Swiss spinal stenosis score for patients who had stenosis. And so we were able to look at their motor performance and look at the motor performance of healthy people and try to determine if this Fitz Law task was a useful one to do. Uh, with this population. And we found out that it was, so I'm, I'm quite excited that that paper is uh, going to be coming out. And with the, uh, with the JMPT study, we wanted to look at whether or not symptoms could be provoked by activity and whether or not that would actually impact their ability to do Fitz Law, uh, the Fitz Law movement test. Because if you think about it, with our patients who have degenerative lumbar spinal stenosis, uh, they are extremely limited by their movement ability. So if you test them at baseline after they've been resting or sitting down in a forward flex posture, they can get up and they can move around for a little while. And then what happens is they start to get that discomfort in their legs and the pain in their back and then they have to sit down in that forward flex posture to relieve it and then they're ready to perform again. And we wanted to look at whether or not uh, being on a treadmill would sort of induce those kinds of symptoms. And if we could measure performance differences as a result of that compared to a healthy population. So we had a healthy population come in, be tested at baseline in this movement coordination task, walk on the treadmill for a little bit, and then we would test them again in the motor coordination task. And we did the same thing with people with stenosis. So they would come in, we would do the baseline, they would walk on the treadmill, we would then test them again after the treadmill walking and see if there were any changes uh, as a result of that intervention. And in research, sometimes you find things that surprise you and sometimes you find things that you predict. So one thing that uh, we weren't necessarily expecting but we saw was that being on the treadmill actually facilitated the reaction time of both groups. So that's something that if you're looking at this population from strictly a, uh, a reaction time motor standpoint, it kind of makes sense. Exercise uh, facilitates reaction time, so you can improve your timing. But what we saw that, uh, that we expected from a clinical perspective was that the lumbar spinal stenosis group had their reaction time more adversely affected uh, by the treadmill walking. And so they tended to perform more poorly in that aspect of their, their motor planning or the, uh, the plan to, to deliver movement, which is what you know, the reaction time really signifies. And then we looked at their variability in their ability to control their movement. And we found that with the healthy control population, uh, they showed on uh, post-exercise, they had a decreased variability 
in in their uh, in their limb movement, the ballistic phase of their limb movement. But that same benefit was not experienced by the lumbar spinal stenosis patients to suggest that the treadmill itself was not helping their motor performance in that aspect. And so uh, we were able to use that to 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 be able to tease out with this outcome measure the differences between that healthy control group and the lumbar spinal stenosis group. And then that led us to design a third study, and that study is currently being tested in my lab right now. And so what we're doing is we're looking at intervention, and specifically uh, a chiropractic intervention, uh, a single instance of spinal manipulation. And so uh, it's a registered clinical trial. If you go on clinicaltrials.gov, you'll find it. Uh, and it will outline all the, the details of uh, how we designed the study and uh, what our inclusion and exclusion criteria are. And uh, so far, we've got uh, quite a few patients who have come through the study, and we, uh, we are seeing some interesting findings in the, the preliminary results of the study, looking at uh, what kind of differences that we're seeing in people who, uh, who have stenosis and are getting an adjustment and people who have stenosis but aren't getting an adjustment and uh, how they perform on these motor tasks. So it's, uh, it's been a good line of work that, uh, that has value, been valuable to, uh, to me as a clinician but also as a researcher and uh, my collaborator, uh, Dr. Michael Johnson, the, uh, the orthopedic spine surgeon, has been absolutely fantastic in being able to look at uh, non-surgical options for care that exists for this particular population of patients. And, uh, and, and been very helpful in terms of facilitating the recruitment of those patients. Without him and without his surgical wait list, I wouldn't have access to the patients to be able to run these studies. Well, that is uh, really interesting, those three studies that you've outlined for us. And I think the, that third study, I'm just going to go ahead and make my prediction there, Dr. Passmore, that uh, you're going to find uh, more, uh, well, let's say improved performance, uh, maybe not as much as the healthy controls, but uh, tending towards that. Uh, and, you know, studies from Dr. Bernadette Murphy and, and some of your other colleagues, uh, Dr. Murphy actually was on the podcast earlier this year, and her, you know, when I asked her, what, what do you think the chiropractic adjustment does? From her perspective, uh, you know, from a simplistic point of view, talking to a patient, basically her response was it, tends to normalize the nervous system. So I think that, um, you know, that uh, my guess would be that's hopefully what you see, but <laughs> we'll find out. Uh, and I look forward to reading that in published form when it comes out. Um, so we've talked a lot about a lot of really interesting studies that you've done over the years. Uh, what would you emphasize from your research in terms of the, the chiropractic performance issues at this point? Well, I would say that at this point in time, the research that I have done that relates to performance indicates that there is a change that happens following chiropractic intervention or, or even a single instance of spinal manipulation, and that that performance goes beyond just a biomechanical change that's associated with you know joints moving a little bit better. Something seems to be facilitated in terms of the actual online control of the, the movement itself, the ability to initiate the movement. So. That's been something that's been really interesting to me that intuitively I, I, you know, I would have thought may be possible, but now we're actually seeing it in a laboratory type setting. And it helps to bridge the gap between some of that neurophysiological study and uh, what happens in clinical practice. And so uh, 
some of the work that uh, had been done earlier by uh, Dr. Jean-Marie Burke and Kevin Ball and, and their contemporaries, uh, you know, said, we see some sort of neurophysiological change uh, that's measurable via TMS or H-reflex, but, you know, what does it mean? And I think the behavioral research sort of bridges that gap a little bit. It, it says that, okay, you have a change in coordinated motor performance, and, and we're able to measure that. And so that's something that patients can wrap their head around a little bit more easily than the, uh, the sophisticated uh, neurophysiological changes that are associated with uh, chiropractic intervention. Sure, and, and that's exactly why I was interested in doing the kind of research uh, that I do, which is very similar to yours, uh, especially, obviously, the Fitzlaw study. But um, yeah. I, I think there is an interesting interplay between, you know, looking at uh, human performance, whether it's athletic performance or just watching, you know, uh, a typical patient uh, get up from a chair or whatever the motor performance is, and and then getting into these neurophysiological studies that you have been getting into as well, because as you say, bridging the gap, I think that's exactly what it does. So, you know, to me, it's really important to measure these behavioral things because frankly, there aren't too many uh, of us out there at this point looking at the behavioral stuff, um, but there's quite a bit of the neurophysiology. And so I, I hope that one day really soon, and, and maybe we're already there, um, it kind of seems like we're close uh, of bridging that gap, uh, but I think the kinds of studies that you're doing now uh, are really going to go a long way to to help bridge those. So thanks for doing that again, doing all these studies. This is great stuff. Uh, what do you see as some of the pressing issues within the profession at the moment, Dr. Passmore? Well, one of the things that really concerns me with the profession right now is that we have a very difficult time defining our dosage. And it makes a lot of sense if you, if you think about it, what we do compared to other professions. If you think about pharmacy or medicine, uh, typically a patient goes in, they have a certain set of symptoms, and uh, the clinician can say, oh, okay, we're going to prescribe this many milligrams of this particular medication. You can take it this many times a day for this duration of time, and then we predict that this effect will happen in your specific situation. And they might make that decision on dosage based on the height or the weight or the size of that patient to be able to make sure they give them the right amount of medication to evoke a, a clinical change without doing a, a, a damage as a result of over or under prescribing uh, a specific medication. And when it comes to chiropractic and manual therapies in general, uh, that dosage question really is missing. And a lot of the, the work that's out there right now that looks at dosage is really just the frequency of care. So it will be, you know, how many times a week someone was seen. So, you know, patients with condition X were seen uh, three times a week uh, in one arm of the study, and patients with that uh, condition were seen once a week in another arm of the study. So looking at the frequency of care that goes into uh, trying to establish what a, a dose is. But I think that we need to, uh, to, to, to boil it down a little further in terms of looking at doses and, and, and try to think about what happens in an individual clinic visit. So you go in, you see the chiropractor, the chiropractor sees you and makes some sort of a decision on what to put into your body in terms of the, the manual therapy that they're using. 
you know, intuitively as clinicians, we would think that, you know, if you see a 350-pound football player come through the door, the dose of manipulation that they receive is going to be somewhat different than the dose that, you know, an 85-year-old grandmother who weighs 100 pounds would, uh, would receive. Uh, their frequency of care could look exactly the same. They could be seen three times a week for a certain period of time, but my, my, uh, my guess would be that there would be some difference in terms of the actual dose of the intervention that they're receiving. And I think that that's the direction that we need to go in terms of research, trying to figure out how to measure what a dose is. And then once we figure out what a dose is and how it's, how it's determined and how it's measured, then we can start to look at dose response. So we can say, okay, when you have this dose uh, and you have this condition and this is what your physical body looks like, this is the response that we can start to predict. But I really think that we need to define dosage and then I think that after that we can start to define what a dose response is to an intervention. And once we know that a little better, we'll have a much better picture in terms of setting up clinical practice guidelines to be able to suggest, okay, you have a patient that's in this age range, they're in this uh, weight and height range, they have this particular clinical diagnosis, we predict that if you do this for this many visits, then you will see this particular outcome. And I think that that would help to provide a lot of structure for some of the new clinicians that are out there who, who don't have the clinical experience of knowing how many times do I really need to see a patient before I'll see some sort of a positive change. What can I tell them on their first visit when the patient comes in and it isn't sure about coming in for multiple visits? When you have the evidence that supports what your dose response is, I think it becomes a lot easier to have those conversations. Very good. Very good. Uh, yeah, and every, every scientist uh, that I've had on so far has, has uh, stated that, you know, from a simplistic standpoint, uh, chiropractic works. And so I think what you're uh, what you're implying here is we need to figure out the optimum dose uh, or to optimize the therapy as best we can so that we can facilitate the best kind of response and uh, from my standpoint and I think your standpoint uh, to one of those things will be to figure out how their performance changes to uh, to an optimal level as well so well thank you uh, very very much for coming on the podcast uh, do you have any concluding remarks you'd like to to say to anyone on the on the uh, line with us? Um, yeah, I, I think I do. So, um, you know, there are there are a lot of opportunities out there for research more now than we've ever had within the chiropractic profession. And so, for clinicians or people that are interested in chiropractic research. There are great ways that, you know, you may feel, well, I'm not a PhD researcher. How do I contribute to, to, uh, to conducting research for, uh, that involves the chiropractic profession? And there's two channels that I'll suggest that you go through for that. So one is the Canadian Chiropractic Research Foundation, which is an organization that has helped establish uh, research chairs across the country in Canada. And there's also uh, the NCMIC Foundation in the United States, which is uh, looking at developing new ways to fund chiropractic research and also fund potential university-based positions for chiropractors in the future. And so those are both tools that people can contribute to tomorrow if they want to make a, a difference to chiropractic research. And as a researcher, I can say that my career has been uh, astronomically helped through the, the funding that 
came through first the Foundation for Chiropractic Education and Research and, and now through the Canadian Chiropractic Research Foundation. So, you know, those dollars do go toward uh, helping chiropractic researchers directly and uh, they allow us to, to have the opportunities that we do, to be able to be integrated into mainstream academic institutions where we have access to some of the most sophisticated research technology that exists and the clinical populations that we wouldn't necessarily have access to if we were in smaller private colleges. And so uh, I would encourage people to, uh, to support their research foundations. And if you want to be able to learn or say more on top of the research yourself, once a month or so, go on to a site like PubMed and just type the word chiropractic and just see what comes up. Read what comes up, what's good and what's bad that came out that month, what people are saying in the research world about chiropractic. And that's a way for you to, to stay stimulated and stay a, a little bit abreast of some of the new and interesting things that are coming up. All right. Excellent advice. And again, Dr. Passmore, I very much appreciate you being on the podcast today. And uh, I hope we can talk soon. Absolutely. Thank you very much for having me, Dean.